Good morning, church. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. And out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, at the end of the reading, I will conclude by saying, this is the word of the Lord, and invite you to respond. Thanks be to God. Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, and Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 35. 1 Timothy says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So Acts chapter 20. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, thank you, Emily, for reading some long passages this morning. And uh, good morning to everyone else. Thank you for uh, joining us today. I haven't had a chance to meet you. My name is Ian. I have the uh, privilege of being one of the pastors here at the King's Church. And uh, hey, thanks for, for being here. It's a real Florida winter day, isn't it? So we finally, we made it. Congratulations. I don't know what kind of feelings that brings up for you, but we are here this morning. 
Um, before we uh, jump into our time in the sermon, um, it does feel appropriate to maybe pause for a minute and acknowledge that this was uh, another tough week in our uh, country this past week. And uh, we saw it once again on full display just how divided and broken we are as a people and as a country. And uh, this week we even saw shameful acts of violence done while crosses were displayed and banners with Jesus' name were flown. And so I don't have anything new to exhort or share you with this morning. If you've been around the King's Church, we've been having these conversations for the past year uh, so that hopefully you are equipped to be a faithful ambassador to King Jesus in the midst of the mess right now. And it's clear that we need to continue to tell the good news of the real Jesus, don't we? We need to continue to tell of the hope that only he can bring through his life, death, and resurrection. And so this morning, before we just jump into our sermon, uh, it feels appropriate today to maybe pause and to pray. And to pray specifically a prayer of lament, which is something that we do here uh, periodically at the King's Church. A prayer of lament is an honest prayer from a place of pain, asking God to move and to intervene and to act. And they show up all throughout the Psalms, and they often are a bit uncomfortable, they can be a bit raw, uh, but they're prayers of honesty about what we are feeling and what we're facing, and prayers that ask the Lord to move, ask Him to intervene. And ultimately, lament is a gift and a language that the Scriptures give us to express probably what a lot of us are feeling uh, this week right now. So before we jump in, I want to invite you to pray with me. We're going to go to the Lord, we're going to use Psalm 10 a little bit as a lament psalm, and I'm also going to... Uh, pray a prayer that is adapted from the book of common prayer um, for our nation as well. So would you pray with me before we jump in this morning? Uh, Father, we pray alongside the psalmist in Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide your face in times of trouble? Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? Lord, we lament and we grieve the violence, the loss of life, and the misplaced hope that we've seen this week. We pray that your name would be honored and treated with reverence and with obedience. We pray that your church would be marked by a humble repentance, one that doesn't seek to reclaim some earthly kingdom, but one that awaits and anticipates a heavenly one that is to come. We pray, as you have instructed us to pray, that your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray alongside the saints through the ages who have said, Amen, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And from the book of Common Prayer, we ask Almighty God, humbly, that you would save from the violence, the discord, and the confusion, from pride and arrogance and away from every evil way. Defend our liberties and fashion into one united people the multitude that you have called out from many tribes and tongues. Give a spirit of wisdom to those who are entrusted with the authority of government, that there may be justice and there may be peace at home, and that through obedience to your law, we may show forth your praise among the nations of the earth. May we be a city that is set on a hill. May we be a light in the darkness. May we be salt to a dark and decaying world. And may you guard us in that way. Father, we also pray for our time now in your word. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to respond to the good news of Jesus today. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. 
Well, this week as we uh, continue our sermon series through uh, the church, the witness and worship of God's people, uh, we have planned and prayerfully this morning I've prepared uh, to speak on the church and her leaders, which this week I wasn't sure was going to apply, but then the more I thought about it, the more applicable it did seem that as we talk about the church and leadership in the church, this is an important conversation to have together. Now, last week when we talked about the church and her members, we looked at two metaphors for the church. We looked at the church as a body that is called to serve and build one another up, and the church as a family, where brothers and sisters in Christ are to love one another in a way that showcases Jesus. Well, this week, as we turn our attention to the church and her leaders, there's a new metaphor for us to explore, and that's the metaphor of the church as a flock. The church as a flock, and thankfully it's a flock of sheep and not some kind of evil demon birds, right? So it's a flock of sheep that is out there. I have a bird thing, I'm sorry. When we talk about the church and her leaders, the consistent imagery is that of shepherds and sheep. And here's the overriding thing with sheep. They desperately need to be led, and they need to be led well. You see, sheep are fairly helpless animals. They need shepherds who can guide them. I mean, sheep, they often get lice and ticks and worms that have to be carefully removed from their woolly clothes. They often get lost very easily. Uh, In fact, if you see a sheep out wandering, they likely have no idea where they are and where they're going, nor how they can find the resources of food and water to stay alive. And every once in a while, you'll hear, like a few years ago, about a situation where literally hundreds of sheep will follow one rogue sheep off a cliff. So there was this place in Turkey where 450 sheep all followed one sheep off the cliff. They started landing on each other. It was kind of buoyant by the end. Um, But sheep, they need to be led. But the other thing that we see, especially in the time of the scriptures, is that sheep were valuable. Sheep were really valuable. They provided a variety of things. After all, they were food to eat, if you like some lamb chops. Uh, They provided milk to drink, allegedly. I don't know if you've had any sheep milk, but that was something that was around during that time, maybe today. Uh, wool for clothing, obviously. Uh, Their hides could be used to make tents, and even their bones would be saved and harvested for various things. So the picture we get of sheep is that they are vulnerable, yet incredibly valuable. Vulnerable, yet valuable. And at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, that is us in the flock of God and in the church of Jesus Christ. And that includes your pastors, by the way, because good pastors are only good when they realize they are first and foremost sheep as well. Sheep are valuable and vulnerable. Today, we're going to look at the two offices the New Testament has for leadership in the church, and that is the office of elder and the office of deacon. Now, this is an important conversation for our whole church to have together, even if you don't have a desire to fulfill one of those roles, because here's why. The church must collectively seek to both understand what the scriptures say about leadership in the church and honor God's good design in that way. There's also great temptations and confusions around this conversation. In fact, there's often just assumptions. How many times have you heard a sermon on elders and deacons in the church? It's not talked about very often, but yet there's some dangerous things that can creep into our thinking. We can apply the worldly standard of wisdom over top of the church which leads to disaster. It was Eugene Peterson who warned that it was all too easy for the vocation of pastor to be replaced by the strategies of religious entrepreneurs with business plans. And if that isn't true of the church today, I don't know what is. So we need to know what the Bible says about leadership and about elders and deacons, and then we need to try to cultivate that together as a community, and specifically here at the King's Church. 
So here's our main idea today. Jesus' church is designed to be led by elders who shepherd the flock and deacons who serve faithfully. Jesus' church is designed to be led by elders who shepherd the flock and deacons who serve faithfully. Now today, fair warning, it's going to be a bit more of a topical sermon than I usually will ever give you. I'm kind of putting the Mr. Thomas teacher hat back on. Some of you still call me that anyways, so it's fine. Welcome back. And we're going to be diving in to get a clear picture of what elders and deacons are from the scripture. So buckle up, lots of information, but I think and pray it will be helpful for us today. So let's begin. First point with elders shepherd the flock. Elders shepherd the flock. Now, a quick note on terminology. When you read the New Testament, you'll see different terms used to describe the leaders of the early church. You'll see the term overseer. You'll see elder, and then sometimes you'll see pastor. Here's our conviction. All three of those titles are referring to the same office. All three of them refer to the same office. In fact, in Acts chapter 20, which Emily read for us, all three of those terms show up as Paul addresses the same group of people. He calls them overseers, he calls them elders, and he calls them to care for the flock of God, care being the Greek word for pastor, okay? So whenever we see overseer, elder, pastor, we're talking about the same thing. So here at the King's Church, we use those interchangeably. Pastors are elders, elders are pastors. And elder is used most often, which is why we're going with that term today. So I wanna ask three questions about elders. Who are they, what do they do, and why are they important? Who are they, what do they do, and why are they important? So who are elders? Let me give you a statement, and then we'll unpack it as we go. All right, elders are called men of exemplary Christ-like character who lead in a particular local church. All right, so let's work through that. First of all, elders are called. Elders are called. Now, sometimes we can mystify the idea of calling a little bit. We can view this as some kind of supernatural experience, assuming that a person has heard the voice of the Lord saying, you will be a pastor. Now, there certainly are moments in the scriptures and in our experience where God supernaturally intervenes to make something clear, but really the idea behind a calling is an aspiration toward the office. If you go back to 1 Timothy 3, Paul begins that passage, and what does he say? Therefore, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, He aspires a noble thing. It's the idea that there's a clear sense within a man that they are called by God himself to do this work. There's a spirit-driven motivation to fulfill this office of elder or pastor. Calling means elders want to be elders. They actually want to do the job. That's the first part of it. But that alone doesn't just qualify someone right? An internal drive or motivation is not enough. After all, a calling from God has been used to justify all sorts of shenanigans, haven't it? So this calling must be confirmed and commended in a local church. Others need to evaluate and affirm this sense of desire and calling and ensure that it is indeed truly from the Lord. Otherwise, the flock will be hurt and there will be terrible consequences, right? So elders are first and foremost called Secondly, they are men. The office of elder in the New Testament consistently is seemingly reserved for men. Now, this goes beyond the scope of the time that we have today to really jump into this, but I acknowledge that this can be controversial, right? We live in a culture that views any distinction between genders with suspicion, right? We had a weird moment this week with a man and a woman, right? If you don't know about that, blissfully be unaware, it's okay. But we live in a weird moment right now, right? 
The consistent refrain of the scriptures is this, men and women are created equal in worth, value, and dignity before the Lord. They're both image bearers of God, but they're not equivalent or interchangeable in God's good design. You see, in his design, he gives differing roles to men and women in the home and in the church in order to complement one another, with men called to be servant leaders in these spaces. It's worth noting as well that elder is the only position in the New Testament we believe is reserved for men. We'll talk about deacons in just a moment. Now, this never means that elders operate in isolation from women. Of course not. That'd be unwise and unbiblical. Elders should be seeking the input and the guidance and feedback of the whole church, and especially their sisters in Christ who often bring gifts to the body that are different than their brothers. I think Bob Thune says it well. He says, this is not a matter of empowering men and restricting women, but rather of freeing both sexes to enjoy the beautiful, God-glorifying harmony of a robust interdependence. I know there will be some who disagree with that, but that's our conviction from the scriptures. So they're called men, and I say men there and not man, because they always appear in a plurality in the New Testament. Elders always appear in a plural. There is no one-man wolf pack pastor in the New Testament. There's no biblical precedent for a one-man band in the local church. Elders serve together on a team. And this is God's good design, isn't it? There is great wisdom and protection in this. It allows for truly shared leadership. It allows for increased accountability and a better balance of strengths and weaknesses because no one man is good at everything. It also protects an elder and a congregation from one another. There are others who can help speak into that. In fact, we here at the King's Church slowed down our planting process until we had a plurality of elders because we believe this is critical. And so elders are called men in a plurality. And then, most importantly, elders have Christ-like character. Christ-like character. Think about that passage that only read for us in 1 Timothy 3. What do those qualifications have to do with? There is one skill requirement, and we'll talk about that. But all of the rest of it has to do with character. Brothers and sisters, this is a non-negotiable. They are qualifications, not nice preferences or add-ons. The church has to continually be careful that they do not esteem a person's gifting above their character. Otherwise, trouble is always going to be right around the corner. The exhortation here is that a steady, ordinary, predictable faithfulness should be valued over someone with high capacity gifting and questionable character every single time in the church. Take the ordinary faithful guy over the flashy gifted guy who's going to bring things to the ground. Character matters. It is non-negotiable. So according to Paul in 1 Timothy 3, if you look over that passage, elders are to be above reproach in all of life. They must be faithful husbands and fathers. They must be wise and discerning in their judgments and interactions. They must live a life of self-control. They have to be courageous yet gentle, not lured away by greed. Someone who has proved faithful over time and who has a good reputation in the community. Paul's getting at this, elders need to be men who are worthy of trust and submission. Now, elders are not perfect men, but they are repentant men who are growing in Christ-likeness. All right, this might not be flashy. This might not be impressive by the standards of charismatic leaders in our world, but elders who do this exhibit the very character of Jesus himself, which is the point. When you read 1 Timothy 3, you're reading a description of Jesus. 
And after all, it is Jesus' church. So his leaders ought to reflect him. That is who elders are. Called men, exemplary Christ-like character. But that's who they are. Then what do they do? What do they do? Well, our word for pastor in the Latin, it literally means shepherd. It literally means shepherd. So this imagery is helpful for us as we think about the work of a pastor or an elder. I think this entails four things. Let's look at these quickly. The first is that good shepherds, good pastors, know their sheep. Good pastors know their sheep. The ultimate picture of a shepherd is someone who is with their sheep. A shepherd who's not among his sheep is not a very good shepherd, are they? Well, the same is true in the local church. Pastors must tend to the flock. They, as a shared team, know the lives of the flock. They check in on them. They follow up when they see something or when circumstances or life is hard. They're available to the sheep for counsel, for prayer, and for care. They need to be praying for their flock. And the aim of knowing the flock is not just to check their names off on a list, it's to care for them. It's the idea of shepherdly pastoral care. Paul assumes this in both passages that were read. Caring for the flock is an essential part of the job. You see, shepherds at the time of Jesus, they would often take their flock, and when they were gathered in their pen, they would nickname each and every one of them based on a appearance or a mark or, you know, fat legs or woolly, I don't know how many times you can get there with the sheep. And then they have a special call for them. So the shepherd have a special noise and call they make for each of the sheep. Why do they do that? It's so each individual sheep knows they're cared for. Each individual sheep has a relationship with a shepherd. You see, healthy and cared for sheep in the flock of God know they belong to a shepherd who knows their name, knows their story, knows their vulnerabilities, their strengths and their weaknesses, and who to call when things are challenging. The old mantra is true that shepherds ought to smell like their sheep. So shepherds know the sheep. Secondly, shepherds feed the sheep. Now, I know it's January 10th today, and it's the new year, and maybe some of you made some good diet resolutions this year, right? Anybody there? I know we prayed for some people in our group this week, city group, who were struggling with their new diet. Uh, but shepherds, they have to oversee the diet of their sheep. The one professional skill requirement for elders is the ability to teach the Word of God. Elders must bring the Word of God to bear on all of life for the flock, They are to give the flock a healthy, balanced diet of scripture, and they must be skilled at doing so. So yes, this happens from the pulpit or the bar table or whatever this is up here each and every week. We come, we teach the word of God to you. But that word able to teach is not the same as preach. So elders may not be good at preaching, but they can be good at teaching. And they must teach the word not just through sermons, but through counseling through the casual conversation outside after church, right? They teach through the songs that we sing, through the prayers that we pray, and through their life that they live. All this means elders must be men of the book. They must be men who love the word of God and have devoted themselves to it. The emphasis on the New Testament is overwhelming about this. This is the primary call and focus on elders and pastors. They must feed the word of God to the flock, In Acts 20, Paul is exhorting the Ephesian elders, and three times he makes a strong statement related to this. He says, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the word of God. I preached to you the whole counsel of God's word. I gave my life and my labors so that you might know God and his word. 
And elders in Ephesus and elders today are to do the same. Now, this means elders are to teach you not necessarily what you want, but what you need, right? A diet analogy is helpful there. If you are already a little bit wary about the amount of kale that the new diet you're following is encouraging you to eat, it's okay, I get it, right? It has no flavor and contributes nothing, so I understand that. Sometimes elders have to give you what you might not want, but what you need, right? And that is the whole counsel of God's word. In love, you need to hear the truth. This is, Lord willing, by the way, all to the benefits of the flock. Paul says in Acts 20, 32, that the word is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are being sanctified. So elders, pastors, shepherds, they know the sheep and they feed the sheep. Okay, thirdly, they must lead the sheep. This speaks both to example and organization. You see, ancient shepherds in the time of the Bible, they're a little different than modern shepherds. Modern shepherds, they lead the flock from behind. They often have dogs, right, who chase around the perimeter and keep them moving forward. But in the ancient times, the shepherd led from the front. They didn't stand in the back and shout orders safe from the conflict. No, the shepherd went ahead and called the sheep to follow them where they've already been. The shepherd goes before the flock and encourages and encounters any problems before the sheep run up on them. The shepherd leads his sheep as one who has a life worthy and a faith worthy of imitation. They don't domineer over the flock. They don't demand things of the sheep that they themselves are not pursuing by God's grace. They are examples to the flock. They lead in that way, but they also lead by organizing. They lead by exercising oversight, is that New Testament word. Oversight or overseer is where we get our word bishop from. The idea here is to superintend to the body. Elders lead the sheep by organizing them and overseeing the creation of helpful structures or systems. And they do this in order to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Pastors and elders don't do all the ministry. We equip the church together to serve faithfully using whatever gifts they have to build up the body of Christ and to minister to others. They oversee, equip, and create channels for members to engage in this. Good shepherds know the flock. They feed the flock. They lead the sheep. And then lastly, they protect the sheep. Look at Acts 20, verse 29. Paul says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Be alert. You see, the shepherds must protect the sheep from what Paul calls here fierce wolves. And by fierce wolves, he means false teachers and false teaching. It's one of the primary exhortations in the New Testament to elders is to watch out, be alert for false teaching, and it's still an issue 2,000 years later. In case you're not catching the imagery, wolves, fierce wolves, are never a good thing to have around the flock. I mean, what do wolves do to sheep? They don't just nuzzle them, right? They eat them. They destroy them. This is a problem. So shepherds must be alert. They must be watchful for influences that want to destroy the sheep that wants to eat them. So therefore they warn, they guard, they refute where it is needed, all while teaching week in and week out a a, a diet of, of sound doctrine. This is how we protect from false teaching. But elders also have a responsibility to protect from sin and the impacts of sin. This includes their own sin, by the way. 
Elders, like we said, are not perfect men, but they are repentant men. They're guarding the flock from their own sin. But elders are called to have those hard, uncomfortable, awkward conversations about sin when it's needed. That's part of what you pay me to do, is to have that hard conversation with you about what's going on in your life. It's a good thing, though. It protects from the deceitfulness of sin hardening your soul. They're to warn week in and week out about the dangers of sin and call us in Jesus' kindness to faith and repentance. We call that over and over again. Sometimes we exercise church discipline when it's necessary for the safety of the rest of the flock. This all means shepherds must lead with toughness and tenderness, leading in a way that is best for the flock and not for their own comfort and convenience. That's the picture of shepherding. They know the sheep. They feed and lead the sheep, and they protect them from danger. So that's who they are and what they do. What's the big deal? Why are they important? Well, elders, when operating and leading in this kind of way, are a massive gift to the flock. Look at, with me, Hebrews 13. It'll be on the screen. Verse 7 and 17 says this. The author writes, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The ending of that passage is surprising to me. When we say submit and obey your leaders, you might think, well, that's to their advantage. No, no, no. That is to the flock's advantage. It is to your advantage. As shepherds, pastors, care for your soul. As one day I will stand before the Lord and give an account for how we shepherded you. As you follow, as you imitate their way of life, it's to your benefit. And here's the reason why. The flock is ultimately not our flock. Right, Pat, Ryan, myself, want to be the pastors of this church? This is not our church. Jesus is the chief shepherd of this church. Pastors who serve faithfully are under shepherds pointing you to the chief shepherd. Right, elders, when they serve like this, reflect the authority in the heart and the voice of Jesus himself, who says he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He is the good shepherd, and his sheep will listen to his voice. You see, elders who are serving faithfully bring you right to Jesus. They point you to the chief shepherd who obtained the church by his own blood. So I would encourage you, pray for your pastors. Pray for more men to be called and equipped and raised up to this role. Entrust yourself to the pastors. They are God's good gift and reminder to you of his care. So that's elders. Elders shepherd the flock. So what about deacons? Well, deacons serve the flock. Deacons serve the flock. There is lots of confusion over deacons. You've been to multiple churches in your life. You've probably seen deacons done like 10 different ways because nobody really knows what we're doing here. Okay, here's why. There's not a lot in the New Testament about them. They're there, no doubt, but what they do and what exactly that looks like is not always as clear. It's certainly not as clear as elders. So let me give you my best attempt at that and how we want to apply that in our context. In a simple sentence, here's a helpful way to think about this. Elders serve by leading, and deacons lead by serving. You follow that? Elders serve by leading, and deacons lead by serving. The term deacon in the Greek, it's diakonos, It literally just means a servant, and it's used all over the New Testament. In one sense, every single Christian is a deacon in this way because we are to serve and build up the body of Christ. But the New Testament on a few different occasions, I would argue three, describes a particular office 
for deacons? That's what I want to turn our attention to today. So let's run through those same three questions. Who are they? What do they do? Why are they important? So who are deacons? They are men and women of exemplary Christ-like character who lead by serving the church faithfully. Now, I said men and women there, so let's start right there at that place. While the office of elder is consistently reserved for men in the New Testament, the office of deacon is far less clear. Now, you'll notice in your Bible, and maybe this has a little bit of a hang-up for you, that in the middle of those qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, Paul says this in 1 Timothy 3.11, the ESV reads, their, lo- their wives likewise, speaking to the wives of deacons. However, you'll notice your Bible probably has a little footnote there. The footnote is the little number right next to it, right? And then look at that and go down to the bottom of the page and match it up. And that footnote will tell you, or women likewise. That's actually the literal translation in the Greek. It doesn't have a possessive there. It could be talking about wives. That's the interpretive way they went. But literally in the Greek, it says women likewise. It's quite possible Paul there is adding a new category into that section of women who serve in the role of deacon ought to meet these qualifications. Now, when scripture is not as clear as we might hope, we ought to compare it to other scripture and take the faithfulness of God to his church over the generations in mind. So if we look at scripture, is there any other place that might help us here? Well, I would argue there is. In Romans 16, verse 1, a woman named Phoebe is introduced, and she is called a diakonos of the church at Sancreia. And if you look at the description that's given, she seems to have an official role in this church and is coming to Rome. So it's quite possible, even in the New Testament, we have an example of a woman serving as a deacon. And then when we move to the witness of church history, it's overwhelming. From the beginning of the second century, we have whole books written on deaconesses in the church. And even down to today, churches like ours who share our theological persuasion happily appoint women to serve in this role. Here's the big deal. If deacons were operating as elders, this would be problematic. But if we appreciate that elders and deacons are doing different things, then we can gladly affirm this. And in fact, that is our hope and our prayer is to gladly affirm this together. If deacons are not giving a ruling or teaching office over the whole flock, then appointing men and women to this office is a wonderful opportunity to honor the unique and diverse gifts that God gives to the whole body and to brothers and sisters. As deacons serve under a plurality of elders, they can be commissioned to go and use their gifts to serve the body. Now, don't miss it. Deacons must have that same Christ-like character. It's, again, a non-negotiable. Qualifications, not preferences. So deacons must meet the character qualifications that are there. They're to reflect Jesus himself. So that's who deacons are. Then what do they do? What do they do? I want to turn to Acts chapter 6 here. If you've got your Bibles or your phone or whatever, scroll there, turn there. We'd love to have you join me as we look at that passage. Now, this is written in the very, very early church. Elders and deacons are not really a thing yet. But this seems to be setting a precedent that makes a lot of sense when we think about elders and deacons. So in Acts 6, Luke tells us this. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, Greek-speaking Jews, rose arose against the Hebrews who spoke Hebrew because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. 
but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. Now, this chapter seems to be a foreshadowing. Okay, where here's where I think the principle is. Deacons serve the practical ministry needs and opportunities of the body. That's the first point I want us to see here. Deacons care for practical ministry. Now, the apostles here were not above the work of overseeing the distribution of this money to these different widows. It simply was a matter of honoring their calling and their time. There's only so many hours to give. And this work was taking them away from the priorities that they had of the ministry of prayer and the word. It wasn't something that they were too busy with or above, but by being busy with it, it took them away from the work they were called to. And so they appoint these individuals to care for this practical ministry need. Now, both of those ministries are important. Both of those ministries are critical. Right? Both of them have to be full of the Spirit, using Christ-like character and their gifts to care for the body. The only difference is the form of ministry. In fact, there's a little play on words here. When it says, the apostles say, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, that word ministry is diakonos. They literally are saying, we will raise up deacons so that we can deacon the word, so we can serve the word to the people of God. The principle here is a division of labor. These deacons, or future deacons along with the church, cared for the practical ministry needs of the body. This is especially important as the church grows, as the administrative needs increase, as practical ministry and opportunities abound, deacons help fulfill the mission of the church by caring for these practical ministry needs. That's the first thing we see in this passage. The second is this, deacons are concerned for the unity of the church. I think Matt Smethurst is helpful here. He says, of the many lessons for deacons from Acts 6, perhaps most overlooked is their role in preserving congregational unity. The situation was no mere culinary quibble. The apostles were faced with a natural fault line that threatened to fracture the very unity that Christ died to achieve. The gospel insists, after all, that our unity in Christ supersedes any worldly difference, such as Greek-speaking and Hebrew-speaking. So make no mistake, the apostles did not delegate this problem to others because it wasn't important, but because it was. They could have imposed a swift, superficial solution and moved on, but instead, they laid the groundwork for an ongoing solution and a permanent church office. It's a beautiful implication, isn't it? Deacons help care for the unity of the body. They ought to be adept at peacemaking, making sure the whole church is cared for and that no one is overlooked so that the church might flourish together. So deacons are concerned for the unity. And then lastly, deacons work in a supportive role alongside the elders. Every time deacon shows up in the New Testament in this official title, it's always right next to the elders. They're meant to have a partnership together. Deacons help ensure that the elders focus on what they are called to focus on while they use their own gifts to care for the flock. They get to specialize a bit more and oversee these particular areas under the leadership of the elders. And they're a massive gift to the body because they help entrust that the ministry of word and prayer is guarded and they care for the flock at the same time. They guard the church's advancement of the word of God and maintain the health of the body. You see, deacons work in a supportive role alongside the elders. So if that's who they are and what they do, why are they important? Look at verse 7 Acts 6. We'll close with this. It says, And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. 
You see, after they raised up these individuals to care for these practical ministry needs, the church flourished. The gospel went forth in a more powerful way, in a more far-reaching way than it did before. The church flourished and thrived by this division of labor and honoring God's gifts and callings. And as a church like ours continues to grow, we have the same opportunity before us. But there's something even deeper going on here. Just as elders are a picture of Jesus, so too are deacons. Right? Elders who serve faithfully as under-shepherds point you to the chief shepherd. But deacons, as they serve faithfully, they point you to the ultimate servant, don't they? Jesus says in Mark 10 that he came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know what that literally says in the Greek? That he came not to be deaconed, but he came to deacon. You see, Jesus is the ultimate servant who laid down his very life as a ransom to purchase us, the church, sheep, valuable yet vulnerable, and bring us into the fold. You see, Jesus is ultimately overseeing the church. He is its resurrected head who is ruling and reigning over the church and over all things, whether it looks like it or not from our vantage points. Jesus is the lead pastor of his church. He is the ultimate servant who laid down his life for undeserving people like you and me. And he has given local churches the gift of elders and deacons. So it is worth us understanding what the scriptures say, but then cultivating this in our midst. And as we fight to do this faithfully and to honor who elders are and who deacons are, we pray that the church would flourish, that it would thrive, that the word of God would continue to increase and the number of disciples would be multiplied. That's a good prayer for our new year, isn't it? That's worth fighting for together. Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you in your sovereignty and in your plan that you have given uh, the blueprint for how your church is to be organized and led and structured. Thank you you've not left us in the dark there. Forgive us for the ways that we have superimposed what the world says about leadership onto the church. Help us to treasure and, and fan into flame the character qualifications of these roles. May the leaders in your church look and feel like you, Jesus. And where we need to be repentant, help us in your kindness to turn to you and to turn away from sin. Help us to honor your structure of leadership and help the body and the flock to be thriving and flourishing, ultimately under your care. Jesus, thank you that you care for your sheep. Thank you that you care for each and every one of us. May each of us here at the King's Church feel that care tangibly through the leadership that you have called. And may we honor that and fight to preserve that. Thanks for this time, we pray in Jesus' name.